Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. Joseph Lavarnia joins us with the taxes CIB, their chief economist for the Americas in his public service at the White House recently. Joe Lavarnia, I want to talk to you about the mystery of this August, the mystery into Q4 as, as well. How opaque is your Q4 right now? It's somewhat opaque. The uh, Look, the economy's done very well in the past four quarters. GDP growth has been over 12 percent, but I've been of the view that the economy was at peak growth around Q2 and things are going to moderate. But even so, Tom, I, it's hard to see growth still not being really robust in the fourth quarter. I'm more worried about growth in 2022. And that's what the U.S. bond market and global bond markets are sensing, that growth is going to weaken quite sharply mm-hmm. with this bull flattening. And inflation will be transitory. That's what the markets are telling us. That's what the markets are telling us. And is it a weakening back to potential GDP or let's say 3%? I mean, what's the level of weakening, the scale you would presume? This this year growth, I thought coming in, we have growth 7, maybe even 8%. But next year, I'm thinking growth is only 2%, maybe even less. Wow. Which isn't far from the administration's longer-term forecast. And that reflects the fact that we're borrowing from the future because... We've had people that have been, have been unable to spend until recently because of the pandemic. They've been locked up. They brought spending forward. We see that in goods purchases, which are about four to five points above their long-term GDP trend. And it's been predominantly consumption-led. Consumption in the last 14 quarters, if you look, or 14 months, rather, Tom, from when the savings rate went from 34% now down to 9 we've had annualized consumption gains of 21% real. That's amazing. It's mostly in goods. So we're borrowing from the future, and that's why growth next year will slow and slow quite sharply. Joe, let's take your view of the world, and I'll ask you a basic question. How do you think the Federal Reserve operates in the kind of environment that you've just described? They don't do anything, Jonathan. They stay on hold. They continue to pump liquidity in the system. They don't taper. They don't tighten. What we've seen continually since those March, uh, late March, early April highs in 10-year yields is the market pricing the terminal rate significantly lower. That five-year, five-year OIS we've talked about was around 240 back in, uh, back in early April, thinking the market would basically, or the Fed rather, would tighten rates like they did in the last cycle. And just the other day, we were below 150. So the market's thinking the Fed does nothing. Yeah. And my guess is we don't get a tightening until after the next right. presidential election. John, and then this goes right to the heart of what you mentioned before, which is the gentleman from St. Louis disagrees, just flat out disagrees with Joe Lavorne. As does the former head of research, I imagine, <coughs> over at the St. Louis Fed as well. Joe, you said That's no okay. I don't mind being the other side of that. I, I imagine you don't mind that at all. You said no tightening, no tapering. You don't think we get a taper? here, Joe, at all? Not until we know what the contours of a, of a budget deal look like, um, because the Fed will treat a lack of a deal as being contractionary. And even though we're in the midst of, uh, of debating what happens on the infrastructure side, the bigger part of the package is this family welfare bill. And uh, we're not going to know what that looks like if we get it. And it will likely be through reconciliation until maybe mid-October. Uh, early November. So, no, I think the Fed's going to sit and wait, see how things evolve. And it's going to be really hard, Jonathan, for the Fed to taper in a slower growth environment, especially if over the next few months uh, job growth slows, which I expect as well. Just fascinating. Joe and Lisa, this won't be lost on you. No tapering. The other call there, no rate hike until after the next 
election. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I just want to add one other thing. You know, that sounds aggressive, but if you look at the last two cycles, the average time from the last rate cut to the first rate hike was seven years. So this isn't really that unusual if you look at the last couple of cycles. So, Joe, why are some people wrong who are saying that the balance of risks is too much higher inflation, especially with the Fed so dovish and so willing to wait? What is wrong with that call? Because it seems like you disagree. Yeah, well, the thing is, we've never had a, a basically a global lockdown of the economy where we've gotten these bottlenecks. And of course, demand has been much stronger than people expected. The government has provided a tremendous amount of assistance. So it's easy to see why prices are rising. If there's a concern on inflation, and if I'm wrong on inflation, it's because perhaps we, we just spend too much. This is sort of the Larry Summers argument. And maybe evidence of that is seen in, in what the CBO next year was saying the output gap looks like. They're forecasting an output gap of almost 240 basis points, meaning the economy is two points above its long-term potential. That's the highest since 71. So it is possible if we get more fiscal stimulus, you could build this inflation dynamic in the system. But I think most people just aren't fully appreciative of the unique situation we're in and the fact that much of the liquidity we've had to this point has gone into assets, both equities and, of course, real estate. Joe, I hate to use the word uh, transitory, but let's talk transitory. And at what point you start to look past some of the near-term influences on the economy? I'm talking about supply chain disruptions. The gentleman from St. Louis, as Tom said, was highlighting this as one feature that forces uh, monetary policymakers to be more nimble. How do you factor in some of these disruptions that seem overly persistent and persistent longer than many people had expected. Yeah, I would just say, I would just give it time. I mean, the thing is we saw with lumber, for example, which was the poster child for bottlenecks where prices have basically collapsed as the mills were able to reopen. And I've argued we're going to see that more on the semiconductor side and other parts of the economy. It just needs to take time. Uh, the expectation side of it's important. And, we look at, and when we look at the tips curve, that tips curve is actually inverted. So it's not to say the markets are always right. There's just no evidence that anybody believes this is permanent. And because expectations oftentimes can be self-feeding and self-sustaining, those expectations are very likely to keep inflation low. And then as supply comes on, you'll start to see those prices moderate. Joe, none of this is in the economic textbooks at Vassar. This is all absolutely original that we're dealing with right now. How do you interpret the real yield? Are you looking at the nominal rate? Are you taking out the inflation expectation? Which of those two dynamics will adjust the real yield? Well, this I would say just focus on the real yield. The real yield has been falling uh, as inflation expectations have edged up a yep. bit. And that's sort of evidence, Tom, right there. The market does not believe that you're going to have very, very strong growth going forward. It's the I hate to say these words, but it's the secular stagnation thesis. That's really what the market's saying. And you see it more broadly just in the slope of the curve, as you highlighted both in the U.S. and Germany and elsewhere, you've got a bull flattening of the yield curve. So that's really not an inflation story. It's a growth story. And of course, equities benefit from the fact that there aren't any alternatives and there's a tremendous amount of liquidity in the market. Joe, fantastic to catch up. Some really interesting calls there. Joe Lavonia, really good to hear from you, sir. Latixic CIB, chief economist for the Americas. Joining us now on the Dow Jones Industrial Average, Michael Holland with Holland and Company and their chairman, knowing that the Standard & Poor's 500 is more indicative of what's going on. Michael Holland, I want to ask you a Louis Rukeyser question, and I say this with great respect to the sweat of Wall Street week years and years ago when fear was ascendant. 
the way we solve fear in our equity ownership is to extrapolate out what successful companies do. How far out are you extrapolating right now on the companies you believe in? Are you out six months? Are you out six years? More like the years than the months, Tom, but I, I think there are fewer and fewer companies that one can uh, zero in on and say, I think this is worth the, the risk of losing money because the potential for the upside is so significant. There is enough uh, uh, cacophony around about the economy, the Fed, uh, China, COVID, and on, that um, companies like Tyson, which you were just talking about, are, are indicating the world continues to change under our feet. Yet in the markets, because of the, the uh, tsunami of cash that is, has uh, come over the markets over the past uh, few years, we have pricing that uh, we've lost price discovery. We've lost uh, real rates of return to use, risk-free rates of return to use for, for econometric modeling. So the Fed is flying as blind as the rest of us. Interesting to me, Michael, how willing investors seem to be just to isolate a problem. A problem emerges, they can put it over there to one side and say it won't bother us too much. And a great example of this, you mentioned China. This is what Dan Ives of Wedbush had to say. My producer, Jamie, pinged this across to me in the last couple of minutes. This is what Dan Ives says. We believe these dynamics will yet again bode well for U.S. tech stocks as the favorable backdrop and rotation away from Chinese tech into U.S. tech creates an Ivana setup. So, Mike, we used to say a couple of years ago, what hurts some would hurt everyone because we're all buying the same same basket of goods. Now we've got people saying what hurts China will actually benefit US tech. Let's rotate even harder into them. What do you make of that dynamic? Well, the dynamic is uh, reflective of a market that has gone inexorably upward, Jonathan, over the last uh, several uh, years. And, and I think the uh, uh, looking for the, the, the positive outcome is something that I'm always prepared to do. But in the case of China, I think uh, uh, it would be a, a fool's errand to, to ignore uh, what, what's going on. There was a wonderful piece in, in Bloomberg uh, Intelligence yesterday on the terminal about uh, the thing that's different about China today in contrast to the last 40 years, and most of which I've spent going over there, is that they now remember that they're communists. And when they remember they're communists, you end up with a situation where you're not doing things as, as they've been doing for the last, which, which created Alibaba which created uh, the, the opportunity for people to make tons of money. They're now, they're now becoming political and warrior-like. So, Michael, fold that into an investment thesis. If price discovery has gone away, uh, if we have a China that matters more broadly, what are you doing right now? Uh, being very careful, and Lisa, and, and actually, uh, we've we've uh, kidded before about the all-weather portfolio. But I think the as you, the three of you, uh, opine uh, daily, uh, there there are things that don't make a lot of sense, can't be explained uh, in terms of where prices are. You have a five percent earnings yield, the, the flip of the uh, the reciprocal of the price earnings on the markets in the U.S. And, and less than a 2% 10 year treasury with inflation looking like it's going to be sticky at somewhere around four to five to six, and or maybe two to three to four. But these things don't make sense. So what, what, what I do is, is try to identify properties that are useful. Uh, Tom asked a question about weeks and, and months, or Jonathan as well. Um, uh, you buy properties. Uh, I, I would say that, that companies like uh, General Motors, which I've been looking at uh, recently in the last several months, I have, have a plethora of things that could, could go yeah. right, but a valuation that doesn't reflect the overall market. So uh, the risk, but there are fewer of those. Uh, they're just, uh, it's hard to do. 
Michael Holland, do you do some of the parts analysis on companies that have different sections? They're not Ling Temco Vote, Michael. You, you and I are the only <laughs> ones listening or watching that know what LTV is. But if they're not Ling Temco Vote, do you still do some of the parts, say, on Amazon, Apple, or some stock I don't know? Yeah, absolutely. No. It's, it's interesting that you even have to ask the question because that's what value is. If, if, if the three of us, or the four of us, I should say, we're, we're looking at something to buy in the, in the private market, we'd look at what is it worth? What are we willing to pay for it? And, and in the public market, people have gone away from doing just what you described. Uh, Jimmy Ling and, and the LTV crowd figured, figured that out a long time ago. That it, it, but prices were so low back then. In, in a lot of cases, that you could find out that if you looked at uh, you, let's use General Motors today. If you look at the the uh, uh, the, the different kinds of uh, businesses there in um, in technology, any individual one of those a few years from now could be worth a gazillion amount of money. Uh, but they're trying to do that to, to further the businesses. But but yes, uh, you do still have companies like. Uh, General Motors that that afford that opportunity to look at maybe there some of the parts is really worth a lot more than uh, what, what the market's paying for them, but not too many of them anymore. Michael, a legend, and it's always great to catch up. We appreciate your time, Michael Holland. There, Holland and Co. Chairman. Anna Han joins us now, Wells Fargo Securities Equity Strategist. So, Anna, let's talk about that. What does it mean for an equity investor? The incoming economic data of the moment. I think what it means for us is that it can be interpreted sort of how you want to see the picture in the eye of the beholder. What I mean by that is that sometimes you look at the economic data, you can be really concerned. Is growth slowing down? Is the amplitude of future economic GDP growth slowing down? Will that extend the cycle? And in that case, is that a concern and why maybe real yields are pulling back? Because people have uh, a concern about whether full employment can be reached sooner on the other hand, there are a lot of still bright spots in that economic data that support this reflation trade. I think it depends which camp you're in. Anna, your research note is fascinating in its physics where you talk about amplitude. I want to take it over to an even larger idea of magnitude. For the bulls out there in the equity market, what are the magnitudes that get you out to the emotion of SPX 5000 or the emotion of Dow 40,000? You know, those are big, beautiful round numbers, Tom, and people love those shiny numbers. I think to get there, what you really need to see may be two fronts. One is that when you have these kind of yields retreating, you see this kind of natural effect for a discounting model for equity growth, for equity earnings. But on the other hand, that comes with this sort of ominous side of, well, growth is slowing down. Is it sustainable? But to get that yield, people may be reaching into equities. On the other hand, to really push equities, and I think what's been driving it more recently is expectations and estimates. As we've gone through earnings season, you've seen corporates very focused on what do these input costs mean for my margins? And for the companies that are able to pass along that price and those margins can remain fat, then you see that they're able to continue seeing some price appreciation. I think it's that upward expectation and estimate revisions that we're really keeping an eye on to get there. And specifically, just to dig in a little bit more, Anna, you noted in your recent research that earnings estimate revisions continue to trend higher, especially for value sectors. So why is this not being reflected in outperformance of these particular areas where you see growth surge ahead over the past month or so? 
I think growth surgence recently has been a bit of that move in nominal yield. And what's interesting is that nominal yield move has been driven by real yields, but the inflation expectation baked in, at least the 10-year, has remained, well, rather steady. So you see this growth trade has had resurgence as yields pull back. The question for these value stocks is, is this reflation going to be a concern? And that uncertainty, I think, still weighs on it, that additional risk premium that you have to bake in. But when you look at estimates, you're right. These uh, value sectors are really what's pushing the estimate revisions. And if that continues, and if that expectations or these revisions can continue outpacing what investors want out of it, I think you will see that eventual appreciation later down the road. And what leads to the downdraft? You and a team with Chris Harvey looking for 38 50 on ESP. We've had the 4700 view just about an hour ago. What's the 3850 view? Well, if you remember us coming into the year, we talked about low volatility and defensive strategies come summer. And look what's happened in the recent month. We recommended a tactical pivot into low volatility strategy and style because a pullback in yields could cause some of that volatility. And for us right now, it's not that necessarily our longer term view on reflation has yet changed. But we like to say, be careful of perception becoming reality. Once the market really starts to doubt the potential for reflation, the potential for growth, that can kind of spiral out of control. So for us, the reason we remain cautious is that we're seeing signs of concern, and that can really have a sort of uh, negative and spreading effect amongst investors. So it keeps us a little bit more cautious and on our toes. Earlier this year, Anna, we were pointing to, to retail investors as a potential swing trader uh, when it came to certain big moves in equity markets. Are they still players, or have they all gone back to taking vacations and not dealing with the Robinhood accounts? Well, I think they are definitely still a player and they may be even growing as we go several years forward. However, for now, I think a lot of the flows you're seeing and that's been dominating more in the fixed income markets has been lower institutional side, has been your bigger fishes or whales in the ocean here. But when you look at equities, a lot of this sort of uh, risk taking or risk um, seeking was pulled back last month, given the additional concern about potential for full employment to be a bit further down the road. And as that risk appetite wanes, I think you may see the retail crowd be a little quieter and maybe be a little, may sit down a little bit in the stands. Anna, good to catch up. Always good to hear from you. Anna Han there of Wells Fargo's equity strategist with Chris Harvey and the team. This is an important conversation, and it may surprise you that it's our conversation of the day. We're trying to recalibrate equities and economics into the litmus paper of the system, which is yield. And John Farrell, you've talked about global yields as being as important in their interdependencies as the U.S. 10-year benchmark. Yeah, let's get to Porik Garvey on that, Tom. ING, head of global debt and rate strategy. Porik, all this talk about 10-year yields, and they shouldn't be down here in the Treasury market. Then you look to Germany, and yesterday the whole curve below zero, beneath zero. Porek, how important is that dynamic, the European dynamic, that gravitational pull, yield to lower? Oh, it's absolutely vital. It's, 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 uh, I mean, this is an incredible set of circumstances, but you can't get away from the fact that the Treasury yield is the global benchmark. And as we sit here today, we're looking at that 10-year heading towards heading towards 1%. And I think the, the big lesson here for Europe is that Europe never really recovered from the global financial crisis as measured by monetary policy. I mean, rates are still negative. QE is as aggressive as it's ever been. 
the only hope for Europe is that the US manages to repeat what it did post the great financial crisis, stop buying government bonds, raise rates, get back to some, some semblance of, of normality. So what I see in Europe is a loss of hope because if the US can't do it, how can the Europeans do it? They haven't done it before. A loss of hope. I mean, is that the message from the $16.5 trillion of negative yielding debt, the highest volume globally since February? Is this representing a loss of hope? You know, you've got to break this out as to whether the market discount is telling us something about the future or whether the market is being pushed there by an excess demand for fixed income. And I think it's a bit of both. In a sense, there is a loss of hope because we've got to accept that the marketplace, the bond market, is a discount function. But at the same time, we know central banks are huge buyers of government bonds, persistent buyers of government bonds, and that's a major catalyst behind this fall in yields. Everybody wants to be on the same side as a central bank. And as long as central banks are buying bonds, that's the side you want to be on. Hence, we find ourselves in this incredible situation, very deviant from where macro circumstances are. Mark, you know, we're all talking yield here, but this is a time where I flipped a price. And the answer is there's a massive bid on all this paper. Is it similar to 2005? in 2006, or is there a different character to the bid, the insatiable desire to move price up on fixed income? There's a whole series of players out there, Tom, that are buying fixed income. And you know, it's not just guys buying bonds, it's also corporates setting up fixed rate receivers where they swap from paying fixed to paying floating because they feel that by paying floating, they're gonna get the cheapest funding and the, 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 um, the prognosis in terms of rate hike risk is, is really quite dim. So um, what I see is an excessive demand for treasuries. Um, we see a lot of buying out of Tokyo, for example. And you know, I've said it before, if you're sitting in Tokyo, you don't care what US inflation is, as long as it's not affecting US yields. Um, and that's the story, I mean, if, if the, the simplest explanation for where we, where we are is an excess of demand of supply for fixed income. Um, but it, it, it poses problems. The, the Fed has, have not spoken about this, but they will not be happy to see the 10-year approaching 1%. It makes life very difficult for them. They should stop buying tips then, shouldn't they, Porrick? And we'd stop talking about real yields, wouldn't we? Wouldn't we have an adjustment there? I mean, I'm asking you the question, how, how distorted that market is right now. Well, the, 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 the entire spectrum of rates is, is distorted. I mean, minus 100 basis points is an absolute distortion. Um, 1% potentially for the 10-year is a distortion. And, and here's the thing. Uh, the Fed wants to hike rates. Not now, but they will want to hike rates. You can't hike rates with the 10-year at 1% because you're, you're just going to invert the curve. Yeah. The, the, so they have an issue. They want to get that 10-year up to 2%, ideally. The way to do that here and now is don't taper, just stop, stop buying government bonds. Will they do that? Unlikely, but that's what they probably should do. Porek Garvey, it's good to catch up. ING Head of Global Debt and Rate Strategy.
This is a joy, and it is a joy, John, when you are weaned out of Indiana, as part of my family was. David Ricks is with Eli Lilly, their chairman, their chief executive officer, celebrating his 25th year uh, with the company. The Ricks era, going back to his uh, first day darkening the door, is nine, excuse me, 12% uh, per year. In the last 10 years, the stock is Home Depot and Apple-like, up 24% per year. It has been an extraordinary uh, move. David Rick, uh, David Ricks, I want to talk about where you are now with COVID. There's some sensitivities here with the antibodies and that. When you're meeting with your head of research and science, Daniel Skowronski as well, when you look back at the last 18 months on COVID and you look forward to the next 18 months with this horrific pandemic, what have you learned and what's the to-do right now for Eli Lilly in this horrific pandemic? Yeah, Tom, thanks for having me on. And uh, Dan's a key partner for us. And as a science-driven company, you know, th those meetings happen a lot as we were talking offline. Um, COVID, we've had a lot of ups and downs with COVID. You know, last year, uh, we had a lot of unknowns about where, how this would progress. And we set to work to create therapies because that's what we do. We're not a vaccine company that could be helpful. And we did that. I think we're very proud of that. We launched uh, neutralizing antibodies, um, both a single and then a combo. Um, and uh, we also have developed one of our anti-inflammatory medications, Alubiant or baricitinib, which actually today we read out results that in those on ventilation or ECMO, the most advanced patients right. in the hospital, reduced death by over 40%. Um, but we just wanted to, you know, put our tools to work to be helpful. You know, our ongoing business is, is about treating other diseases. We're not a virology company. Mm -hmm. um, and so as, as the, the pandemic has ebbed and waned, um, those businesses have come back strongly um, as treatment uh, for diabetes and cancer has improved uh, once doctor's offices open. Um, you know, we don't uh, think about ourselves as, as a COVID company, but we were happy to make a big right. contribution. And this year, you know, that, that ended up in a fair amount of sales. Although in the second half, you mentioned the guidance being narrowed on the, on the year, that's really about reducing COVID-related antibody sales and increasing um, the performance of our underlying business. We do expect that as these waves happen, they'll begin to subside, each one will be lower, and a new sense of normalcy will set in. Uh, right now well, we have a problem in the U.S., but, but you know, we think there's a way to fix it, get everyone vaccinated. Dick Ricks, tell me about Alzheimer's, the absolute uproar in Washington about the need for a solution, the whole FDA thing. I get that. Fine. You guys going back to insulin get these horrific diseases correct. What are you going to do to help our listeners and viewers with Alzheimer's? Yeah, th thanks. Uh, this is an area that's very personal to many of us at Lilly and our scientists have been working for over 30 years to try to create a medicine that could slow the progression of this disease. You may know this, but it, it's the sixth leading killer. It's a fatal disease and it's the only one in the top 10 without a medication that slows it down. Um, recently, uh, the FDA uh, shifted their policy. They said, look, um, showing an ultimate benefit in a slow-moving, difficult uh, disease that we don't fully understand has been hard to prove drugs on. Do but you, they excuse me the for line. interrupting. This is really important, Mr. Ricks. Yeah. Do you support that shift in FDA policy? So, look, the regulator needs to make that decision about risk and benefit. But, of course, we believe that amyloid reduction leads to slowing of the disease. We've been betting on that for some time and put billions behind it in research. And now we have a leading product in that area, donanumab, which had the first ever 
uh, clinical trial in humans read out positive in Q1. So we have launched a bigger study, and we said in Q2, we're planning to submit this year uh, under that new policy. And we think patients uh, deserve access to that medication, but we're going to prove its worth uh, just in the following year. We have a huge study going on so, that uh, we just said is, is almost enrolled and, and will prove that benefit. Dave, the Biogen drug was incredibly controversial when it came out, in large part because of its price, in addition to the FDA policy, which did seem controversial even within the FDA panel. How do you plan to be different with your Alzheimer's drug in terms of the controversy, in terms of the pushback, and frankly, in terms of the price point? Well, we're not going to announce the pricing today, but I'll just point out, I mean, we, we tend to compete aggressively in all the markets we're in, and that benefits patients. And we, we compete by creating better molecules, better medicines themselves with different properties. In this case, our medicine works very rapidly to clear plaques. By one year, almost uh, the, the vast majority of patients in our study no longer needed to take the drug. They had cleared all the plaque in their brain. Um, that's different from all the other antibodies being studied, which are really lifetime therapies. Um, secondly, uh, we compete on data, and this is important here, and I think the source of the controversy. Few argue that um, the approved drug uh, might have worth. I think the big argument is, did they prove they had worth? Um, it, did it really affect the disease? Um, of course, we are committed to complete the study that's, that's now uh, basically enrolled. We'll, we'll finish enrollment this quarter. Yeah. Um, and we'll have that data in 23, which is a pretty short period of time in the trajectory of drug development. And finally, we will compete on value in the marketplace. And when we uh, hopefully get our approval sometime next year, uh, we'll, we'll talk about our, our, our pricing strategy. Hey, Dave, just quickly, a minute on the clock. Are you requiring your employees to be vaccinated? Uh, not at this time. Uh, we're not. Uh, we believe we have very high rates of vaccination in our population, but we're tracking that issue very closely. And of course, new information uh, just released uh, in the U.S. about the transmissibility of the Delta variant, uh, variant um, from those that are actually vaccinated is of uh, concern. We're analyzing that as we look at our policy. To date, we've had uh, very few, if not a zero, uh, in many of our facilities uh, uh, tra uh, transmission of the disease. Yeah. And, and so it hasn't been a real problem for us in uh, running our business, but we want to look at that and stay abreast of the latest information. Dave, it's good to catch up and get your view this morning. Dave Ricks, Thank Eli Lilly Chairman Take and CEO. You as well, Seth. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. For insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations, and subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.